I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. I mean, obviously, I was going to pause on the artwork and stare at Percy's drawings. That's the reason I paused it is that I was like, oh, he's an artist. Let me critique him. <laughs> I was like, mm, I could do better than that. <laughs> Welcome back to Monster Donut, a literary and historical deep dive into the Percy Jackson TV series <laughs> and all of its following spin-offs. I'm Emily, a classic scholar-ish. And I'm Phoebe, a dramaturg and story consultant. Imagine if it does have following spin-offs. I'm sure it must. It's gotta. That'd be so good. Listen, I want to see Son of Net Walker as Son of Neptune Percy yeah. so bad. Yes. House of Hades <laughs> with these guys uh, writing it. So good. <laughs> It's really mind-boggling that I can open my computer and have episodes of the show that I can watch. Like, sometimes I'm like, I don't know what to do right now. I have a couple minutes of free time and I just will turn on Percy Jackson <laughs> just because I can. It's it's so surreal. You know, we started this podcast a little over a year ago and at, like it simultaneously feels like it's been such a journey and also feels like a blink, like nothing at all. Mm-hmm. Like, oh man, it's it's crazy to be here. So... This is kind of like a like a season two of Monster Donut in my head. Yeah. Which means that we might have to restructure the way that we talk about the show versus the way that we've talked about the books. But I think for this episode, we're just going to talk about it chronologically and see what happens. I mean, if we were doing our usual format and putting that in quotes, we would just like wait for the whole first season to be over <laughs> and then just talk about it. Like, let's talk about the whole thing in one hour. <laughs> So the two of us are very, very fortunate and have gotten to watch the first four episodes at this point and have also gotten to interview a bunch of the creatives about those episodes. Mm -hmm. And we'll be including clips from those interviews throughout these episodes so that you can get that behind the scenes perspective on whatever we're talking about. Yeah. Also, a warning up front. If you are watching this series but have never read Percy Jackson, you should not start the podcast here. We are going to be talking about spoilers for all of the books because we just spent the last 25 episodes reading them. So if you don't want spoilers for the whole series, go read the first book and then listen to episode one. Okay, so this episode takes us from chapter one through chapter four of The Lightning Thief. We start off with Percy's iconic opening page, basically word for word. Um, And actually, no, you know what? You know what we actually start off with is... uh, Mm -hmm some really cool sound design that is so reminiscent of what used to play in the theater before the Lightning Thief musical would start <laughs> with the wind mm. and the thunder cracking. It's actually that over over blackness, over a black screen, and then Percy's iconic opening page and Bear McCreary's incredible soundtrack. And we also start, our opening image is actually a shot of Percy kind of walking towards the camera with and just like a downpour squinting ahead. It's the shot. The shot I talked about in our Patreon predictions episode. (laughs) And then we kind of get a little bit of a montage of him growing up, encountering fantastical creatures as he does his opening page monologue. Yeah, I think our actual introduction to Percy is it's very fitting. And I'm talking about like not that opening shot of him on the beach because we'll come back to that. And like that technically takes place later and we're not really we're meeting him. But we're not, like, being introduced to him totally. He's still giving his warning. I do want to pin, though, that that is our opening image because when it comes back, I want to... Yep, I've got things to say. I've got things to say about it. We'll come back to it. But the actual way that we meet Percy as, like, I think he's, like, a second grader. It's that... I don't know how they cast that kid. That's, I was, like, the kid. <laughs> that was one of my notes is that when we saw him, when we saw this clip at Comic-Con, I literally for a second thought that he was just Walker CGI'd to look younger. <laughs> I know. Incredible job. But what we what we see is Percy narrating, but as a 
a teacher like sprints down the hall and the kids are staring at something out the window and like the strings are playing this high kind of eerie note and then we've got like the teacher clearly horrified by whatever he sees and sprinting up the stairs with the shaky cam and it's like that's how we meet Percy (laughs) yeah as this kid who's clearly separated from his peers and also seems to be wrapped up in something mildly terrifying and also as a kid who saw something out the window and decided to sneak out of class and climb up to the roof to get a closer look and succeeded. So immediately we've got curiosity, we've got disobedience, and we've got Percy as something unspecified. <laughs> something unique and dangerous is involved. Yeah. Whether it's him or not, we don't know at first. Once Percy's like, oh, I saw something on the roof, then you're like, ah, I see. But for a second, you're like, what is going on? And I do think it's the same like monologue, mostly. We, they sort of changed the ending and the way they transition out of it. And yet the tone feels different. Not necessarily in a way where it's like completely changed, but it's like a sort of different take on it. Because I think the opening of The Lightning Thief, the examples of all of the mythological things that Percy has encountered up until this point that he's sort of written off, I think are a lot funnier in the book. Mm-hmm. But here it's both painted as sort of an inevitable piece of his life that nobody else sees, something that like separates him from people, which is in the book, but I think it's really brought out here. Like the humor is in Percy, like as a small child, he's a lot more skeptical about, you know, the adults all telling him it's not real. But I think we also see the transition of him losing a little bit of that like, of course it's real belief, which I think you see a lot in this episode is as him having to come back around to confront all of the stuff he thought, you know, that's clearly still affecting him, but that he was like, he's been trying to leave behind. Yeah. We also get a like lighting change where it's like warm and welcoming when we introduce Grover, which I Mm. loved. Yeah. It's like the music swells, everything feels like happy, which is great. Yeah. And we get Mytho Magic introduced, which is new. Yeah. Oh, I, you know what I did? (laughs) First of all, Percy's an artist now, which is amazing and wonderful (laughs) i need to know who made these drawings that he like i who drew the drawings that are in percy's notebook but i paused it on his drawings to see what he had seen and maybe maybe he also just draws the things that he's interested in in his mytho magic games but what he's drawn that i caught there are probably other things but there's a hydra there's a cyclops so what you're saying is he's been to monster donut he's been to monster donut the reason i say that he's probably also pulling from just the myths and his favorite stories is Cerberus is on there there's what looks like a sphinx to me and there's Medusa there's Mm -hmm. the Minotaur there's the like metal rhino that he sees at the window and uh hilariously a block s because of course (laughs) of course (laughs) of course the one that I got stuck on was it looks like Bessie there's a cow with a serpent tail on his page yo (laughs) eagle-eyed Oh, that's that's amazing. I'm curious what of these things are things he's actually seen and what is just him, you know, drawing out the stories that his mom is telling him or his favorite myth of magic cards. I do want to point out, I was still taking notes on like what everyone's intro was, like the, our introduction mm-hmm. to each of the characters. And so Grover's introduction is still a scene in which he holds Percy back from a fight, which is what he does in mm-hmm. his original first scene. But now our real introduction to him is as someone who is mostly just like a warm and helpful presence in Percy's life that helped him cope. Yeah. Which I appreciate. In the book, getting to know Grover is kind of strange considering you're like, you're getting to know him and Percy's like, this kid's annoying me and then leaves him at the bus station. (laughs) And you're like, how am I supposed to feel about Grover? Is he your friend or what? Um, while we're talking about Mythomagic, I just want to point out that on the Minotaur's Mythomagic card, his main move is Overslice, apparently. What could that mean? <laughs> <laughs> and here I thought I was pausing a lot. <laughs> overslice. How do you overslice someone? <laughs> I mean, you, you slice, you're stand. he's like seven feet tall, so mm-hmm. that you, you're over them. Yeah. Maybe it's, or maybe it slices them with the horn and like throws ah, them like over his head. Like over slice, like throw them over with his, yeah. his slicer. That, even as you're saying that though, I'm like, that's not real. That's <laughs> not the word you'd use to describe that one. <laughs> so once Percy's narration ends, we get to the Met. 
it's kicked off by Chiron saying, what you see here, they are not fictions, they are not fantasies, what you see here are the truest and deepest parts of yourselves. Friends, the gods, monsters, heroes you see here in this room are reminders of what we are capable of. Which is just like a concept that I'd like to hold on to because it's like the first real dialogue that we get in the whole show. And it's also Chiron's first line. Gotta keep track of those. <laughs> yeah. And then just the way we set up the mythological world as reflections of humanity and specifically listing the heroes in the room as these sort of inspiring figures, which is in direct contrast to what we'll hear from Sally like two seconds later when she questions whether the heroes in the room are even heroes. Is Percy's first line mom? Percy's first line is mom. <laughs> <laughs> it is no longer I'm gonna kill her. It is now mom. Iconic of him. It's fitting. Yeah. <laughs> but that comes after we get the Perseus flashback which is our intro to sally they're standing in front of the perseus and medusa statue and he's mentioned already that his mom in the narration that his mom told him all these stories and then i think we get what rings to me as a very sort of like I, a lot of the time i found my instinct as a writer and i noticed this in the show is whenever you want to like have something you want to use as a touchstone you kind of need to set it up right at this part of the um script of the story and so I found it really interesting that the scene with Sally and the way we're introducing her is we're also setting up what is probably going to be one of the main themes of the whole show, mm -hmm. if structurally these writers are working the way that I think they are working, which is, well, okay, so first Percy asks her, is that why you named me after him? Is because he was a hero? And she says, what makes you think he was a hero? Percy answers, because he kills monsters. Sally asks again another really important question, which is, and what makes you think she was a monster? Mm -hmm. Very interesting, considering specifically we're talking about Medusa here, which, yep. again, putting a pin in, we're going to come back to that. And then we sort of get the end of that thought from Sally, which is, not everyone who looks like a hero is a hero, and not everyone who looks like a monster is a monster. Mm -hmm. But I do really like that Sally's the one asking these questions. Especially given the sort of Sally-Medusa parallel that we kind of talked about a lot in our first episode. Yeah, I think it's important that probably the most sympathetic character gets these lines and that they're like her first lines. And we're using this time to set up this idea of, like you said, what is monstrosity and what makes a hero and how can you tell the difference? And then we're pairing it with the idea that both heroes and monsters are, are both things that we'll find the truest parts of ourselves in as like our introduction to the story the amount of weight that they're putting here it's it's like a massive sign in flashing lights <laughs> like keep this in mind Question yes exactly we're, we're signposting the thesis statement this is our thesis statement we're gonna come back to it periodically in our supporting paragraphs and then we're gonna come back to it again in our conclusion yeah i do want to bring up the fact that Sally has been telling Percy these myths, that Percy is learning all of these stories from Sally. I think we talked about this a bit already in our predictions episode, but if you don't pay us for that, <laughs> you kind of <laughs> missed that conversation. But it's a shift that the, the fact that Percy now learned all of this from Sally, and it's important to, I think, their relationship and to how we view Greek mythology throughout this series and to kind of establishing the storytelling theme that yeah. we've talked a lot about um, because now when Percy sees himself in stories like Perseus or like Theseus when he acts those stories out it's not just like I'm acting out the stories that my teacher taught me it is now I'm acting out these stories that I grew up with and that are now connected in his mind to his mom and have yeah. been like a core part of him like so core that he's playing mytho magic <laughs> he's playing mytho magic he's doodling these creatures in his book that's it's clearly something that he thinks about constantly which also just gives her so much more of a presence because obviously Percy is a character he obviously is constantly thinking about her and he loves her and you know he grew up with her but us as the audience, it's a kind of brilliant way to keep Sally in our brains the whole time over the course of um, the Lightning Thief story when we're not listening to Percy's thoughts. Oh, man. And this is going to make the, in <laughs> season three, Nico showing up as a 12-year-old with these cards. Or sorry, like a 10, no, was it an eight-year-old, nine-year-old with yeah. these cards? I know. I was like, I cannot wait to see Percy and Nico interact now that Percy is also a Mythomagic kid. And so is Frank. The Son of Neptune oh. quest must have been unbearable for Hazel. <laughs> <laughs> 
Hazel's like, oh man, every guy that's important to me is really into these cars. Hazel's like, why every time we see a monster, you guys are like, man, that thing does 6,000 damage. (laughs) (laughs) But while we're talking about this, uh, I think this is where we can actually bring in our first interview clip. Um, This is our interview with John and Dan and James, who's technically there, but doesn't actually say anything in this clip. You'll hear from him later. But this is when we actually got to ask them about this change to Percy's relationship to mythology. So the two of us have now gotten to see the screeners for the first four episodes. And I just have to say we are so thrilled by what we've seen so far. It's like, it's really, really incredible. (laughs) Have you watched them more than once? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> Pretty much you right now. <laughs> there are so many things I want to ask you about, but I'll I'll start with uh one of the things I really loved was uh this new angle on Percy's relationship to mythology and storytelling with Sally now having told him stories from Greek myths growing up and him playing mytho magic. Um so I'd love to hear what led you to making that connection to the mythological world different from what it was originally um why wouldn't she right like i i think um it, there were some really early conversations with um with daphne olive who's, who's one of the writers and staff um about that idea and, and and it just felt really true to me um as hard as it is for sally to protect percy as impossible as it is the one thing she could protect him with are the stories and they're sort of this this um this secret co-book of, of, of answers for things that she knew he'd need one day uh, there's no if in that sentence you know at, at some point he was going to need to know all those things um, and i think um it, it just really kind of helped to um uh, help you invest i think in their in their relationship in the relationship between a, a kid and for all intents and purposes a single mom um, and, and I think, um, it, um, it's one of those things also weirdly that like, I don't think it's mentioned in the book, but it, I believe it happened in that world. Like, I, I, I don't, you know, and, and I think when we started talking to Rick about it, there was never a moment's hesitation from him either, um, that, that it felt like the kind of thing, um, his Sally, canonical book Sally could have and maybe even did do. Um, and so I think that was part of the fun of the game sort of pulling some things out of the the the, the shadows of, of the book where they they probably existed and 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 chunks and just giving him giving him all those all those tools um, that he needed that she couldn't fully share all the details at this point but she wanted him to have have have, have everything to to work towards it once she knew she would eventually have to share uh, the real story the the story with him and then uh Dan starts talking about spoilers for episode four so we will come back to him we should talk about the part of the myth that sally actually tells him though because in the book sally tells percy that he's named after perseus because perseus had a happy ending but in this it's more sally seeing herself in the myths and seeing her story in the myths and she explains that perseus and his mother were cast out by a very angry king Perseus's mom named Danae or Danae I think it was Danae she has her baby with her and there's a storm on the sea and she says to keep the to keep him calm to keep him together although I don't think it's like a baby in the way the way she tells it it seems like Perseus can understand her um but she says in this beautiful whispery voice hold fast Perseus (laughs) ASMR (laughs) (laughs) brave the storm that is meant to break us, for we are unbreakable. As long as we have each other. As long as we have each other. For some reason, I didn't write that part down. <laughs> Which fascinated me. I remember, um, because we saw this part of the clip at Comic-Con, and afterwards, Erica from Seaweed Brain came up and was like, is that in a myth? Is that is that a thing? And I was sitting there, and I was like, I don't think so. I think they just made that up. Because that doesn't sound like translated Greek. Um, and most of the time, when you see these kinds of stories... A lot of ancient Greek myths don't really have dialogue like this, especially. So I was like almost sure that this was sort of a invented line, an invented part of the story. But just to make sure, um, (laughs) (laughs) I did go on a bit of a deep dive to see what we know about this story. Mm -hmm. As did I. (laughs) 
what was interesting is there's apparently several lost plays about her, which I did not know. So there's the Sophocles one. There's um, a couple more series of plays, which makes sense because Perseus is quite a big and probably would have been a quite well-known story. Um, and a lot of Greek plays were sort of trilogies. So you'll hear about like the Oresteia or um, a series of three plays that are about Oedipus. Like they kind of come in those sets. So Perseus, the story of Perseus definitely like has enough material for three plays. <laughs> mm. So I was looking through to see if there was any surviving dialogue. And um, we do get some dialogue quoted from some of these plays of her like coming to shore. But none of it really seems to be focused on this part of the story. Sadly, at least what we have surviving. Like her her story of like meeting a god and her becoming like a parent to a demigod is sort of like one or two sentences at the beginning of this huge sweeping epic. And it made me think a lot about Sally and that even still she is seizing on to these other women in these stories that have gone through something like her. And it made me wonder about like how much more of that story she might identify with, like feel, especially like the feeling of being trapped. And something else that's interesting about that story is, uh, at least in some of the myths, there's a storm on the seas, and Poseidon is the one who like calms the storm and brings them to safety. So, yeah, I was curious about the language here. This was part of why mm-hmm. I looked it up, is also because I wanted to see if this exact dialogue was from somewhere. The storm that was made to break us was an interesting way to phrase that was like someone created this storm to break us and if we're using that as like a parallel and I also I started wondering if it would make sense to talk about why Perseus and his mom were put in the chest in the first place because that king the angry king that Sally talks Mm -hmm. about was Perseus's grandfather who was Mm -hmm. given a prophecy that that child would overthrow him one day it just feels like there's a lot being set up here parallels wise yeah also you didn't bring up this poem by i don't know how to say it if it's like simonides let me let me let me there's a poem that is from danae deny her perspective uh fragment i found a couple translations of it online but this fragment it's about her in the chest talking to Perseus. The top Google result when I Googled it was um, new version by Don Harmon was the translator. Yes, that one because it was on a page that seems to be just about like someone having a meeting about something I was like, I don't know who who wrote that one but we'll read from that one, sure. My child troubles have me, yet you sleep so soundly, oh baby on my breast. In this bleak box moonlit, bronze bolted, blue black dusk and gloom you lie. The salty brine drowns your drenched locks, but you give no attention to the surge of waves or howling racket of the wind. You lie. Your sweet face peeks through the purple robe. But if you took our terror for a terror, your little ear would hear my sad lament. Sleep, baby. Sleep, ocean. Sleep, boundless evil. I command you. Change will come. Zeus, father, may some change come. Forgive presumptuous prayers. Whatever words I say are far from just. This is as close as I could find <laughs> to what Sally says to Percy here. And it's not what Sally says to Percy here. Mm-mm. I'm sorry, I'm reading this guy's paper on this because I'm curious. <laughs> That's really interesting. He would have lived a little bit after Sappho would have. His writing style it reminds me a little bit, not of Sappho's, but they're both a lot more personal the way they write versus a lot of more of the ancient Greek lyric poets that would have predated them or even been contemporaries of at least Sappho, were a lot more like Homeric in the way they would write. It was a bit more epic, at least um, the ones I've read. Hmm. Because the, the way I read this was, because this is the only version of the story that I could find, I figured that this might be something that Sally has read and that this is the poem that she saw herself in. And so I guess if it's actually a rare perspective to see, I think even if the words that she says here aren't the exact words that are in the poem she probably did read it it makes sense that of all of the versions of this story that she would gravitate toward like this specific like i i find it actually kind of charming that she would zone in on this very specific fragment of a poem that exists about a woman no one else was talking about because it's the one that she recognizes herself in the most um so back to the met we're still in chapter one (laughs) i know 
I think the most important thing that is about to happen, I mean, we meet Nancy, we meet Mrs. Dodds, um, but Grover has his first spoken line of dialogue. Technically, uh-huh. the, the first time we hear him talk is, he, we hear him a little bit when they're playing with the magic, but like it doesn't, it doesn't really count. His first full line is, there's all sorts of schools of thought about what drives that kind of bullying, childhood trauma, feelings of inadequacy. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, that will be relevant for the whole show. <laughs> uh, specifically when it comes to Clarice and Luke. And even Annabeth at times. A lot of them, honestly. Yeah. All these bullies. <laughs> and as you pointed out, they do trade lunch meat for cheese. I, I was right. I also uh, love Grover, another one of Grover's first lines, which is to Percy. If there's one thing I know about bullies is that you should never, ever stand up to them. Yeah. <laughs> Because I, I think when I'm reading The Lightning Thief, Grover is definitely like a, a pacifistic character, but I feel like this is one of those things where they're really bringing out this aspect of his character, which is great. I love when uh, when they're talking about like what they're going to do about Nancy and Grover's like, you know, there are people who we can talk to at the school and <laughs> Percy's just like, oh, I was thinking about shoving Nancy in the nearest dumpster. <laughs> And I love Grover's little, like, oh, afterward. Like, Aryan and Walker are, they're killing it. Immediately, they're killing they're, it. They're <laughs> so good. Also, speaking of people killing it, Nancy Boba Fett, I wrote down, is acting. Mm-hmm. Her, her performance is amazing. She's really just giving it her all. Something that I was surprised by. When we saw this clip at Comic-Con, it, it was very surprising to me. <laughs> because we see the quote-unquote push but in the book, this is actually, I think, the first example we get of that, like, blinding rage that tends to take mm-hmm. over Percy. Because he mm-hmm. he blacks out and can't really tell you what happened to Nancy. Like, he genuinely might have pushed her in the book. But he just hears mm-hmm. the other students saying that it looked like the water reached out and grabbed her. But here we see it plain as day. Like, he goes to push her. He, he actually does go put his hands out to push her. But she gets, like, flung back into the water before he even touches her. In this case, we're leaning into this idea that Percy is seeing things, like, really seeing things that he shouldn't be, which is a big thing in this first episode. So Percy needs to have that very clear vision of what happened that day so that we can tell him that he's wrong over and over. But yeah, that's, that's something that is important to this episode is the idea that Percy is starting to think that there's something wrong with him. Yeah. Something else I thought was really interesting too is instead of it being a fight scene, it's like, I I feels almost like Riptide is protecting Percy. Yeah, Riptide's definitely like a little bit sentient. (laughs) Yeah, like we don't see him really uncap the sword. We're not given a reason for him to have uncapped the pen. Although he feels it vibrating when she comes over to him. So he's given like a little bit of a clue that there's something going on. It's this very almost passive moment. Like it's sort of like we've talked a lot about agency too. And I thought that was really interesting because it doesn't feel like he's got a lot of agency in that initial encounter. It's just sort of a lot of things that happen. And then she just vanishes to ash. Mm -hmm. Speaking of Mrs. Dodds turning to ash, we also we have a clip from our interview with Eric and Jeff where we talk to them about the process of creating the way that monsters would crumble when you killed them, which we'll play now. Something I was thinking a lot about was just how big a role you guys play in the the world building of this show, like and how the magical um, effects and all of all of the magic essentially really kind of comes out of a lot of the visual effects. So I was curious um, if you could talk through some of your thought processes, specifically with effects that you know are going to be recurring, like, uh, for example, when the monsters are crumbling away once they're uh, killed, and how you're sort of setting that tone for the rest of the show. Yeah, there, there was some, um, <clears throat> I mean, there's definitely a design and exploration process. I think what was interesting about the monsters crumbling is that we needed to set a language for it, but then multiple vendors on the show were doing the crumbling. So, you know, ultimately that's what Eric does so well is like, he kind of keeps us all in the same, you know, paddling down the same stream, but we can have variation between them. That's specific to how and the environment that it crumbles. So the first one we did was really the way the mom disappears that you saw in episode one. And that there's elements of that that riff that we riffed off of for the way the Minotaur crumbles, but that had a different feeling to it. Obviously, it didn't have the golden light and kind of turned into this, you know, black crumbles. And then there's also the way Electo comes apart in episode mm-hmm. one. 
So yeah. they all share the same language, but they all have variations that are make them more sort of creature specific. And then immediately after that, we get cut to black and the voice, the principal, I assume, or the headmaster of Yancey Academy talking. And he says, the truth can be so hard to determine, but in this case, the truth is hard to deny. And we find out that this is Percy's disciplinary hearing. Yeah. I'd love for someone to identify the painting that was behind Percy and Grover in this scene. I'm uh-huh. sure there's something there that I can <laughs> that I can dig into. <laughs> but this scene is is kind of where we get our first like massive change, which is Grover betraying Percy and getting him kicked out of school. Yeah. And you really get the deep it cuts hard. It it's such a it's a cut. It yeah. hurts. It's it just immediately establishing a totally different dynamic for these two than we're used to. But honestly, like when I was thinking about it, I was like, in the book, Grover spent months lying to Percy and left Percy yeah. feeling alone enough when he was with him that he, you know, left Grover at the Greyhound station because he was freaking him out. Yeah. It makes sense that that's a part of their dynamic that we're holding onto and carrying through and like making it an actual part of their relationship because in the book, it really isn't one. It's just sort of how we start them off. But here we're getting like a real actual betrayal to set them off. It made me curious how we were going to handle the betrayed by one who calls you friend line later on. If we were like Mm. really trying to set up reasons why we're going to doubt everyone on this quest and like Mm. consider that maybe maybe Grover would would do it. Maybe Annabeth would do it. Yeah, I think the betrayals also come out. There's a lot of betrayals in especially this opening episode. Or a lot of times when Percy feels very betrayed by the people he's trusted most. Mm-hmm. So I think later on when we talk to Sally, we get a lot of that those feelings too. And I think it, it cuts really deep as well because I think they've done a good job of establishing how few relationships Percy has and especially how few close relationships and those betrayals stacking up and up. So I think we get it a little bit with, um, at this point, Mr. Bruner as well. I also found it really... I mean, I'm. it's not like... It's so uncommon that this was such a deliberate choice, but I also did enjoy the fact when we see the outside of Yancey Academy and Percy's waiting for his ride back, it's like neoclassical architecture and very like, we're seeing like columns, we're seeing like all of the same aesthetic. Yeah. That has like come to kind of represent like authority here. That's a good point. Um, Also love how we're establishing (laughs) Percy's anti-story agenda. (laughs) (laughs) Like, obviously we start off with the like, do not listen to my story. I'll tell it, but you better not still be here when I do. <laughs> Monologue. <laughs> and then we also have this line that Percy says to Chiron here, um, where he says, I don't need any more stories about how special I don't realize I am. And we'll get even more <laughs> in the scene with Sally later. But Percy does not like the way that adults use stories. And the fact that so many of them are used as a way to try to explain to him why he's special. Like He does not like the word special. And he doesn't like people trying to make his life into a story. All of this just feels condescending to him. And like we'll get to when we get to the Sally part, like he knows that there's something very real going on. And he feels like people, by turning them into stories, are brushing him off or are simplifying them or aren't seeing reality in the way that he is. Yeah. So then we get him coming back. We have a very different uh, introduction of Gabe here. Mm -hmm. But I do like that shot. Uh, you know, when Percy, the way that Percy shows up and Eddie is sort of like a friendly face before Percy has to get in there and Percy hesitates before going in and we're just like hearing the shouting from the outside. But then Gabe's introduction, we get this version of Gabe who is, there's very little physically intimidating about this guy. (laughs) You know, he's sitting there lounging in his chair the whole time. He actually shows like that he's kind of impressed that Percy attacked a kid. Like, their their relationship is obviously antagonistic, but it's nowhere near the level that it is in the book. And there's also, like, the power dynamics in this in this household are also very different with, like, Gabe is not employed and probably sits in that chair all day long. And she also, later on, we'll see, she, like, goes toe-to-toe with him. And he's already, like, submitting to her in this relationship. Mm. So, totally different. I'm very curious where that's going to go because I'm like, does this guy even deserve to get Medusa'd? <laughs> Yeah, but I think that's the thing, though, is he, 
he's like a more insidious kind of terrible to me. And it's like, I felt like when Sally and Gabe kind of are arguing when she's, you know, when they're going to Montauk, I thought it was interesting because I felt like I got a glimpse into how this happened, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like how, how their relationship happened, like how they, them getting married happened. Yeah. The argument over the Knicks really made that clear to me. Yeah. Yeah. And I love it. Sally goes like full New Yorker. And the accent coming out while she's arguing with him. (laughs) So I thought that was really interesting because I also feel like it does give a little more dimension into like these adults, Sally included. Like you get to see a little bit more of their past just in that like really short exchange. But I do also feel like in The Lightning Thief, when we see Gabe, he's just so classic, the worst kind of evil stepfather character mm-hmm. to the point that he feels like a caricature. Yeah. And so here I feel like he's less of a caricature. So I feel like that's going to make where we're going with it maybe even more scary. That was kind of my thought was that like, it could be so that we can set up the 180 at the end. Like, so that that argument at the end escalates from the Gabe that we've met right here up to somewhere horrifying. Yeah. But I do also think him, like, looking almost proud of Percy, like, hurting somebody is also, like... <laughs> Foreshadowing. <laughs> yeah. It's 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 a more insidious thing of, like, you're gonna... I'm gonna praise you for perpetuating, like, my behavior. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious what they're going to do with Gabe, if we are going to have that scene at the end, and how they're going to do it now. We should talk about Sally. Yes. I. She's so brave and cool in the show. <laughs> like, she's just a badass. I love this introduction to Sally, though. Like, this introduction to, to modern-day Sally, because we've already, we've met, we've met Sally briefly, telling mm-hmm. Percy the story of Perseus. But this mm-hmm. introduction of, like, modern-day Sally where it's just her sitting out in the rain. It looks like while she was in the middle of ironing, because there are, like, clothes hanging off of the ironing board behind her, decided to go sit out in the rain and turn on Logical by Olivia Rodrigo. (laughs) (laughs) Logical is such a specific choice, too. Like, have you heard the lyrics of Logical? No, no. I don't... I don't listen to a lot of music, baby. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't immediately look up this song when you heard <laughs> Sally was listening no. to it in the rain. Um, <laughs> I was like, she is thinking either some very intense thoughts about Gabe right now out there in the rain or some very intense thoughts about Poseidon out there in the rain right now. Mm-hmm. Ne- either way, it's not looking good for either of those men if <laughs> she's listening to Logical by Olivia Rodrigo. But my biggest yeah. thought here was that all of these choices made Sally feel really young. Just the fact that she is is sitting out there living, listening to Olivia Rodrigo. But mainly the fact that throughout this episode, she makes a lot of, like, little mistakes. Like, later on, she is slipping up trying to explain things to Percy. And also at the cabin, it was, like, a small moment, but she falls for Percy tapping on the wrong shoulder. When you know he's done it a hundred times. And she just feels like there's an energy to her that feels like she's still getting the hang of everything. Mm. I really like this version of Sally because, I mean, we've we talked briefly about how young Sally is in these books. Mm. And so I like that that's just the energy that I'm getting from her. I think um, also like we hear like the screaming and the yelling of between uh, presumably like Gabe and Eddie mm-hmm. um, before Percy walks in. And I think that was to me, that was why she was out there. I can't deal with this right now. I need to go to my happy place energy. I enjoy the power move of, like, the happy place is the fire escape, whether or not it's torrentially raining. Mm. And also, I think what becomes more and more clear the further we get into this part of the episode, it's not about any of that. I feel like, to me, the way I interpreted it is she's thinking about how she has to tell Percy everything now and and how she's afraid she's going to lose him, basically. Yeah, like, she now knows what comes next for them and knows what she has to do, probably, in the next day so they get in the car to montauk and phoebe percy has a dream (laughs) percy has a dream (laughs) right so percy's dream he's standing out on the beach in montauk it is not the dream that we see in the book and it pans over the water and i'm expecting to see zeus and poseidon or an eagle and something wrestling and it's not no, it's a figure. It's a mysterious it's a figure, figure. <laughs> holding a little light, and then it speaks. Mm-hmm. It says, "Who are you? So weak, so sad, so scared. Run away, little hero, before you get hurt." Which 
I was so struck by the fact that it's the exact same warning that Percy gave us at the very beginning. And that like his opening lines now, my my perspective on them has totally shifted because he's basically just quoting Kronos on the opening page. <laughs> like this is the shot that we saw at the very beginning. So like this is this is very explicitly what we're referencing is Kronos saying, run away before you get hurt, which is what Percy says at the beginning. Turn away while you still can. And that's just like fascinating to me. <laughs> that's wild. I did not make that connection at all. <laughs> I was thinking about how like if we're thinking about storms that we have to weather the first storm we see in the show is this dream and I was thinking about how to me I wonder if this is sort of sending that subconscious message of like this is the storm Mm -hmm. this is the main trial you have which is it's funny because it's like the imagery the storm the voice Nick Moraine killing it by the way (laughs) (laughs) not what i was expecting for Cronus's voice but like nailing it yeah that description in the book of like stones scraping together really you get it you get it it's like it's raspy it's almost like he's like he's sick and i was thinking about how in the book the voice starts to feel stronger and like more real over time and i can totally see that happening with the voice that we're starting with here but yeah anyway the words that he's actually saying are not actually that scary i mean just the idea of a mysterious figure saying that you're so weak and so sad and so scared is kind of scary. <laughs> but the fact that the first things that Kronos is saying to Percy, they're a warning, you know, run away. And like the fact that he he seems unaware of Percy and like unsure of how yeah. Percy ended up here in front of him and yeah. like seemingly is trying to help him. Definitely not. Yeah. He's seemingly trying to help him. <laughs> um, that like, that's their you? first interaction. Yeah, the who are you? Run away, little hero, before you get hurt. Fascinating. <laughs> Fascinating. I'm gonna I wanna come back to this later. I don't think I have much to say now, but I'm sure we'll have plenty to say about like I I'm imagining that once we get to Kronos, it'll be a lot like when we had to go back and look at everything that Kronos had ever said to try and figure out what was going on with Kronos. Yeah. I'm feeling like that again. In the book, does he have his first Kronos stream after? No, this is his first Kronos dream in the book but it's only in that I think he hears Kronos's laugh mm. okay guess what I was thinking though because I I was wondering if the Kronos dreams got like personal to Percy or if he was just like seeing a vision of like because like that first dream to me is not a Kronos dream that he's like intentionally sending to Percy it's like Percy's yeah. just sort of seeing what's happening the first thing that I just checked the first thing that Kronos actually says to Percy it looks like in the books is he laughs again the evil laughter always (laughs) and then Mm. says come down little hero come down and then you know the crevice opens and he falls into the pit very different first interaction that we're getting here so Percy wakes up in Montauk yeah and Sally's been crying Ugh, what a detail so this is when I started to pay attention to background stuff Because I saw this, like, pebbled frying pan, like, this, like, <laughs> thing that's, like, hanging on the wall. And I'm crazy. So I was like, that looks like a Cycladic frying pan. I wonder if they're hiding, like, Greek stuff in front of me that just, like, they've seen in all these museums. Because if you've been to any museums of, like, Bronze Age Greece, like, Cycladic world, especially in the Cyclades, which are, like, the main, the big, like, cluster of islands in the middle, those those things are everywhere. We call them frying pans because they're... They look like them, but they're probably not frying pans. Considering most of the decoration is on the bottom that you wouldn't see if you were using it as a frying pan and that you would probably destroy if you were using it as a frying pan. It gave, I feel like it starts to transition us into the Greek world in a very like subconscious way. If you've like seen a lot of the stuff in the museums, maybe. There's also like the central hearth in this house, right? Like there's a big fire pit there Mm. and they're about to toast marshmallows. This scene where Percy tells Sally but he's been trying to tell her throughout this episode that he thinks that something is wrong with him. And then Sally turns it around and tells him what's been happening. I love this. I love this scene. And I think the thing that was striking to me too is how betrayed he feels the more she keeps trying to tell him the truth. Mm-hmm. And it's like how unwilling he is to believe it, especially considering like, again, that setup we saw of him as a kid where he was he was seeing it and he was, you know, he started off being like, no, I know I'm right. I know I'm real. And like, we saw that kind of leave him. I love how much Sally struggles to explain this to Percy also. Yeah. Because it's just an impossible conversation to have. (laughs) And she just was clearly not ready at all to have to do this. And it's like she knows what words 
she has to say to him mm-hmm. but there's just like no right way to phrase that yeah she's like stumbling and not really getting and like there's the slip up where she kind of which is like I think the first sort of beat of like the betrayal that Percy gets where she sort of mentions she's like oh what did what did the what did she say to you mm-hmm and Percy's like, how did you know that? And he sort of comes to this realization that his mom has been talking behind his back with Mr. Bruner and with Grover, too, the two people that have just, like, kicked him out of school. And he's just like, so you're in league with them, too, is everybody just yeah. against me altogether doing something? Like, you really feel that. And you get that here. Mm-hmm. I do want to note our first description of Poseidon here. Mm-hmm. Um, Sally describes him as wise and brave and kind and noble. Also, I love that. You fell in love with God like Jesus? <laughs> so funny. <laughs> but the part of the scene that I've been thinking the most about is how Percy reacts to all of this. Beyond just the what I talked about earlier with the, his reaction to feeling like Sally is just telling a, him a story to try and calm him down and not taking him seriously. It's just the, the fact that he can feel his brain breaking and just so desperately wants help. But everyone around him like you said, has been, is just betraying him, is just doing all of these things that make him feel more alone. And like you imagine this from Percy's perspective, and he has been seeing things his entire life. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he'll look away and then look back and it's actually a garbage truck. And that's something that he has to live with. And then now all of a sudden one of the hallucinations is coming after him. And also, you know, Nancy is flying through the air instead of being pushed by him, but everyone's saying that he pushed her. And it's just, Mm. I'm glad that we're spending so much time on just how terrifying and how lonely it must feel for this kind of thing to be happening to all of these demigods. And that entering this world is like really, really scary. But then Grover, of course, bursts through the door. And then there's also this immediate like offbeat disconnect where like both Grover and Sally are on completely different pages about like how they're telling Percy about stuff when they're telling Percy about stuff Mm -hmm. the Grover and Sally dynamic is so funny (laughs) to me (laughs) it's so good because it's like they talk as if they've talked a hundred (laughs) times I know and you're like how do you know each other (laughs) but I mean I'm I mean that also just adds to the Percy feeling alone in that car. Yeah, staring at them both, alternating with looks of betrayal. Mm -hmm. It was a complete betrayal. Yeah, when we saw this clip at Comic-Con, that was like one of the main things I came out of that room talking about was the way that he just stares at Sally while Grover is talking. I think it's when uh, she tells Grover that she hasn't told Percy about camp yet, and then Grover starts explaining what camp is, but the entire time Percy's just staring at Sally, realizing that like she totally lied to him understanding that Grover's been lying to him and also Grover betrayed him earlier in the episode yeah. and it's like there's got to be a part of him that just feels completely alone in this yeah my takeaway was I'm actually 24 is one of the funniest it's lines so of dialogue funny. in the show. <laughs> <laughs> like that's a line I would have written it's just like very my sense of humor so I think that's why I think it's so funny I think why it's also funny is like there's an added bit of humor that comes from the fact that he's 26 in the book And so 24 is also just a shocking age to come out of his mouth. (laughs) (laughs) And then we get the Minotaur, Mm -hmm. which spawns like in a flash of lightning, which I thought was so fascinating. It spawns like a monster in a video game. (laughs) Yeah, it does. I also love the shot of the Minotaur coming up alongside the car. Yeah. It's so like, just the whole, the whole car crash felt very like... I felt jostled. I, I felt like I'd been yeah. in a crash. Did um, you catch as well, like, right before they veer off the road, Sally puts her hand across mm-hmm. Percy to, like, stop him? Yeah. The car crashes, and then they start making their way up to uh, Half-Blood Hill. We get our first look at uh, Thalia's tree. Yeah, and I love the way it is. It's because it's so distinctive, but it also does look like... it. It's, like, slightly weird that it's there because it's not in a cluster. But other than that, it just looks... It's like, if you know, you know... And it's up this really steep hill that just feels like mm-hmm. a shl- like a complete slog. Yeah, it just feels impossible for them to make it up there. And I, this is, I think, the first thing I texted Phoebe when we were watching the first episode. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but Sally pulls Grover aside, and she she's not treating him like a kid at all. She's treating him like a protector. And she there's like a long shot of Grover looking at the tree, and then like Sally calls him over and is like, "You listen to me." 
you protect my kid. You you swear right now that you will protect Percy. Like, and I, I texted Phoebe like Sally making Grover swear after he stares at Thalia's tree. Dot dot dot. Evil. Dot dot. dot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just I wondered when I when I realized what was going on I was like is she making him swear on the river sticks that's crazy um which like she might be maybe that's how they do it they don't have to explicitly say I swear on the river mm. sticks on the show but it doesn't even matter like we've said a million times the power of a promise in this world it's it's like unbreakable <laughs> like <laughs> just it made me feel like Sally is very aware of the power that a promise has yeah. like the sort of magical quality of a of a of swearing yeah like it feels vital that grover promised her this yeah which i think percy picks up on i think he has a line Mm -hmm. at that point where he's like what are you guys doing (laughs) um there's clearly something magical and sacred happening there and then and then percy's mom teaches him bullfighting this is um we have this beautiful little moment with percy and sally here and i started this was a moment where i started thinking about um we've shifted the connotation of uh, Percy's name. Because in the show, Mrs. Dodds calls him Percy Jackson. But Sally calls him Perseus. Which is like, mm. in the books, everyone calls him Percy except for the monsters who call him Perseus. And so it just felt like we were flipping that for the show and just really associating Percy with the heroes especially. Um, it made mm. me curious how we're going to handle the relationship we have to the Greek myths and heroes um, and Percy, you know, in the books, eventually realizing that he doesn't want to be like them. I am just this specific choice of like really tying Percy to Perseus. It's especially because we explicitly like the first time we talk about Perseus is like, why do you think he's a hero? What makes him what makes him the hero and her the villain? Like, I'm like, I'm seated. I'm ready to see what we're going to do with this. <laughs> <laughs> so Minotaur fight. Sally is the one who uses the red jacket. And that shot when the Minotaur picks her up. It's so beautiful. It's this whole scene. I was telling James, I love this scene. <laughs> I love this scene. The fight choreography later on. Because we see like this, you know, this heroic shot of Percy running at the Minotaur. And you think, you know, he'll at least get one good shot. <laughs> yeah. But of course he doesn't because he's 12 and he's never like fought with a sword before. And immediately both of them are knocked to the ground. And like, it just, this whole scene, it just, the choreography, it felt like a real fight between someone who has no idea what they're doing and just like this this beast and you can see you can see him again compliments to walker but that one shot we we've already talked about it and i was like oh i think you have a different interpretation of this moment than i do but that one shot of percy after they both get knocked to the ground and there's like that Mm close-up of him on the ground um, and you can see him kind of processing what he's doing and what's physically happening to him right now (laughs) to me that expression it went from that to like total anger that's how i read Mm. his expression at that point with it it just felt like you know he's completely driven by like this thing just killed my mom and that was what i saw taking over on his face was like the sort of the processing of that moment and then letting the rage set in and then getting up how did you read that expression (laughs) yeah that makes sense to me I think the way I read it was just, like, this total bewilderment of, like, I'm still alive. Like, to me, it felt very much like, all right, I'm going to run at this thing with my sword. And then it's like, they both go flying, and it's just that moment of, like, am I dead? I didn't see the rage. I I need Mm. to go back and rewatch it. And this scene is one that we got to talk to James about directing, um, and also John and Dan. And this is just one of my favorite clips from the interviews that we got to do. These stories were so fun. Um, so James, uh, we've got some really killer fight scenes in episodes one and two, um, including the iconic Minotaur fight, which I was blown away by just the fight choreography, the pacing, Walker's acting, and just all of the directorial choices that you're making in that scene. Um, will you describe for us the process of creating that scene? Because I'm also, I mean, it was also in the rain, so that's got to have been a whole process on its own. Yeah, we're inside as well on the volume stage, so it's a lot of fun. That that stage got very wet very quickly, you can imagine. We're underwater after a half an hour. We had guys like literally sweeping out the water. But I mean, really, we, we talked about it a lot, John and I, and it was really a thing about doing that sequence very much from Percy's perspective. 
And so a lot of the time we're not that close, we're away, um, we, you know, because it, it does feel like a thing whereby we want to see it as he sees it, as he experiences it, like, like all the show, frankly. And so I felt like it was quite an important thing that he, and also, of course, remember, he's small, he's a small 12-year-old boy against a 14-feet-tall gigantic nerd, even though he's wearing pants. He's still a very, <laughs> he's a very scary uh, opponent. And I wanted to have that sense of, that it should be scary from his point of view. And I felt that was quite a nice way of approaching it. Those two that ideas, the angle of him, partly because of what's just happened. He's, done, he's fighting him because of what happened with Mum right now. So there's an anger in it too. So there's all these elements going on at the same time. Um, and I think it's the sort of desperation of his anger, which causes some, him to do what he does. He's brave. And so I, I love that too. There are always various angles to it. And there are all these ideas which you then convey to Walker, who then has to convey that in the rain and in the dark. And so I'm so pleased that he kind of brings it together so well. And it's such a, it's a really powerful sequence, I think. And I think that really by the end, it feels like something whereby it's not the sort of thing people can normally do is kill a Minotaur and you know, first fight with it. So it felt, it felt like I had a really special moment through him um, because of what happened. And I felt by the end, it really felt that that was a justified situation. But yeah, it was really fun to shoot and complex because of course the Minotaur has many things. It is a bucking kind of bronco thing. It is like just a stick with a giant Minotaur on the back. It's nothing, it's another person. And then at the end, Eric works his magic and does this incredible, you know, we designed the Minotaur many moons ago and it has this beautiful kind of white, what's the ball called? The, the brown ball. Yes, yeah, and it's, it's, it's kind of whitish grayish. Um, but I always wanted to have the, the Minotaur has a human aspect to it too, a sort of an intelligence in a way, it's, it's physically strong, but it has a, a sense of self. And I think that was important too. The Minotaur makes choices in that sequence. They're quite often wrong, but it has, it has intelligence. And I think that was important too. And at the moment when it transfers from all fours to two feet two was a big moment. The idea that it chases him off fours and then stands up was a great moment. Um, it also meant we had to have articulated hooves, which is quite weird. So if you ever see those actually up close, you'll see the hooves have these weird kind of fingery things, which, because uh, he's got to grab the rock. <laughs> the rock has to be, anyway, so he has this quite unusual design, but I, I did feel that, and he has to wear pants too, so he has this threat, but he's also vaguely comical. So it's many things going on, but I, I really, um, yeah, I think they did a great job. We shot, we shot this for so many days. Yeah, it was a long... and, and the one big mistake we made was putting Walker in that like wool's really awesome sweater, because when that thing got oh, wet, yeah. it was so heavy and it smelled so bad. Yeah. And so <laughs> he was stuck for days in this drenched. But it was good because it made him struggle. Yeah. The whole thing should be, it's really hard to kill a Minotaur. It's really hard. And the weight of it was really helpful to him because he had to physically struggle with it. Yeah. And it's just a kid. So it's a really nice sequence that it should be hard. And it is hard. And, you know, that's what's so successful about it. That he loved every minute of it. Oh, yeah, you can't get mad at that. Because he obviously kept saying, do you want to dry off? No, not interested in drying off. Very happy being soaking wet. Wants yeah. to stand on the rain all the time rather than just, you know, it's, just, it's amazing. And then... We get our first Annabeth line to end it all. Which is, he must be the one. <laughs> I was like, close. Yeah. <laughs> it, it reminded me, that final shot reminded me of, um, I mean, I think it's intentional. It just feels too obvious to, <laughs> to not be. But it's the same way that Percy wakes up after the Mrs. Dodds encounter with all of the kids surrounding mm. him whispering about, mm. like, is he dead? Like, <laughs> Um, mm. And this time, you know, it's that same scenario of him waking up after a fight. But this time, all of the kids around him are going to believe him. All of them but Clarice. <laughs> <laughs> Spoilers, sorry. <laughs> also, since this is the first episode, can we talk about these credits? I know. They are They're gorgeous. So I love that you can see the whole plot of the first book like laid out here. Also, I love uh, Poseidon with his long red hair. It's giving Captain Flint fan art. <laughs> <laughs> I love like the art. It's like a very Art Deco-y style that just, it reminds me of like the Empire State Building. Mm -hmm. It reminds me of the Chrysler Building. You know, it feels very like, like, oh, this is what's engraved in Mount Olympus somewhere, you know? Yeah. And I, I hunted through the credits to see if I could figure out who did this sequence, but I couldn't find a name. We'll mm -hmm. figure it out eventually, though. Um, and the music, I can feel it. <laughs> We're gonna we're gonna do a whole episode about the music. I can feel that I'm gonna want to sit here and be like, I'm hearing light motifs, guys. Mm. 
Was that Percy's theme? Is that Annabeth's theme? That's how I felt in uh, episode two. I was like, was that a Percy Annabeth theme or was that Annabeth's theme? Let me figure this out. <laughs> Let me keep an ear out. Um, backtracking a little bit. What did we think about this episode? <laughs> how do we feel watching this? What were the big things that stuck out to us? This one's a trickier one for me just because we've seen a lot of clips of it. Mm. You know, like put together, I think we've seen like at least 15 minutes of this 30 minute episode. So, I mean, I thought it was great. I have expressed to multiple people that I want watching this show to feel like I'm reading a literary analysis of Percy Jackson. <laughs> uh huh. And I do, obviously, I'm joking when I say that, but only sort of. <laughs> no, you're not joking, though. Is and I can, I can feel John Steinberg entering the chat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, that's that's what I'm really taking away from this episode is that like I feel like we've been analyzing Percy Jackson the two of us just sort of at each other and this feels like this feels like a third voice coming in and being like what about the theme of monsters <laughs> <laughs> and uh what do you guys think about the Percy Grover dynamic in that first uh that first book shouldn't it have been a little bit messier based on how it started out and it's like you're so right John Steinberg <laughs> Yeah, speaking to my heart, being like, I really think there should be more betrayal here. I mean, like, you're so right. That's so true. Third person. <laughs> that's that is how I feel watching this, which is I'm so glad. That's that's all I really wanted out of this was to feel like someone. I I've also said I think I tweeted it at some point that like I, when I watched when I watched this show, I wanted to feel like someone was kind of taking my interpretation, kind of like twisting it in their hand and being like, Why do you look at it this way? Have you considered looking at it like this? For some reason, I'm imagining it as like a snow globe. <laughs> it's like a snow globe, but it's with rain, right? We're shaking it up and it's pouring. And there's a little Percy on the beach and another guy who's got some kind of glowing thing that I can't see because my name is in huge letters <laughs> across my screen. <laughs> <laughs> I need to clarify. The screeners, they put your name in huge letters. <laughs> they watermark it so hard and I just, I can't see what's in Cronus's hand. <laughs> So, should we give the episode a bead? Oh, yeah, I was just thinking that. I mean, we have to. I feel like I've given too many recently, like scribbles or doodles or drawings, but I do want to give it to Percy's mm. drawings. Specifically of the Ophiotaurus, that one. Mm -hmm. I'd do the frying pan. Because, <laughs> you know, he goes out of the frying pan into the fire and the form. You'll have to send me a picture of the one you're talking about. It's like not even, I. if I'm honest here, if I'm really honest, I don't think it's an actual ancient Greek reference, <laughs> but it is to me. <laughs> mm -hmm. Intent does not matter. It's what I got out of it. Also, like the Cyclades are like the islands. Like they're all small. They're like very seafaring ways. Like, I mean, Montauk, Cyclades, same thing. There's a beach. It's just a lot of beach, a lot of a lot of sea all around there. It's too bad that I have to draw these at some point because my brain is like the shot of Percy on the beach that you theorized about. You'd want that on your beach. Uh, <laughs> I think you should take the red raincoat. Oh, of course. Yes. I've been waiting for that red raincoat and I saw it. It was on my screen. <laughs> Thank you all for listening to Monster Donut. Next time, episode two. Which is titled I Become Supreme Lord of the Bathroom. It took me a second, but we got there. If you want to hear our predictions for the rest of the show, um, you can actually head over to our new Patreon if you'd like to support us. Uh, we predicted all the way through the whole first season. Already, we're right about some stuff. Already, we are right about some stuff. probably wrong about some stuff. <laughs> Definitely wrong about some stuff. Um, I just want to put on record that during one of the press conferences, they mentioned a scene between Grover and Aries yeah. <laughs> during the Tunnel of Love where they eat cheeseburgers, which I said, I'm going to say it was, a, I was about to say it was a joke, but it wasn't. I was dead serious. So I, in the middle of a press conference with my camera on, because it was a Zoom press conference, just burst out. Yeah. <laughs> the two of us were like, no way. <laughs> uh, we obviously want to hear very badly what other people think about the show. So please, you know, DM us, email us, all of your thoughts. You can also answer the Q&As here on Spotify if you're listening on Spotify. I just, I'm so curious what everyone else thinks of this. Send us so many essays at monsterdonutpodcast.gmail.com. Or find us on social media 
at PJOPod on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Um, also, if you're interested at all in supporting us via um, merch on our Redbubble shop, that's at monsterdonut.redbubble.com. Um, you can also now support us on Ko-fi or Patreon if you want to get a little something more for your support. Uh, we're going to start posting a lot of uh, outtakes, things like the times I go on a classic rant for way too long, or <laughs> um, all the times we talked about spoilers for the books that we had to cut because we don't spoil the books. I'll also be posting like works in progress art art time lapses, stuff like that. Yes. And probably exclusive art that I don't plan on posting anywhere else, honestly. <laughs> I'll be like, I don't really like this one. <laughs> Here you go, guys. <laughs> Pay for it. <laughs> yeah. But thank you all for listening. Bye, everyone. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.